You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to our circle. We're very excited to have you all around me and I have to turn and make sure I'm talking to everyone so that'll be fun. Um, Or I might get a bit too dizzy and that could be dangerous. So I'm just going to dive right in. To start, we acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, the Bunwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Sovereignty was never ceded. This event was put together by a round sitting, um, a new collective of students and graduates dispersed amongst you that you may already know. They are Hayden Brown, Sophia Hawking, Tom Heath and Tiernan Lacey. Um, Thank you so much for putting this event on and I will be searching for your eyes the whole event. Um, basically, they've put a round together to start to explore and promote pathways outside and adjacent to traditional private practice to encourage a multidisciplinary approach to architectural education as well as practice. This hopefully is just one of many events that they're going to be hosting, so keep updated by following them on Instagram. Uh, Their handle is at think.around. So, the discussion today serves to inspire us in the many ways to practice in the built environment and asks us to reflect on our education and the opportunities provided to us as graduates. This is done in the form of an M Relay, where each speaker takes a turn being interviewed and then themselves interviews the next speaker and so on. An honest tag team conversation, passing ideas like a baton in a relay. Our speakers will take turns in the hot seat, as we see here, for eight minutes each, with a chime at the seven minute mark to wrap up and hopefully take a question. Um, If they're particularly fast, we might be able to take two. So have them ready. Um, Unlike a usual panel, we won't be having the opportunity to have a drink, talk to one another, and hopefully find some time to speak to some of our speakers. And then we also get to hear from Drasco, the DJ tonight. So, rather than introduce every one of our nine speakers, which is a lot, um, I'm going to introduce them as we go. Uh, And first up, I have the pleasure of speaking to Rory Hyde. Would you like to come take a seat on this microphone stand? All right, this is where I get to introduce my Rory. As many of you know, Rory is a designer, curator, editor and writer. His work has focused on new forms of design practice for public good, redefining the role of architecture today. He's the author of Future Practice, 
Conversations from the Edge of Architecture, which was written in 2012, scarily almost 10 years ago, and co-editor of Architects After Architecture, Alternative Pathways to Practice, <laughs> uh, which came out last year. Um, I have both of these books here if anyone's particularly interested. Uh, so, without further ado, um, I have a very long list of questions. Um, and I'm just going to start. Would you say you're a professional generalist? <laughs> very good. Yes. Um, or either that or sort of distracted. Uh, you know, can't focus on one thing. So I think that the, the slash career, as sometimes it's called, is useful because you have the sort of main thing and then you have the side thing. And then sometimes the side thing becomes more interesting and then the side thing can hopefully become the main thing. And that's, I guess, how I've been able to go from curator to broadcaster to um, academic and so on. Okay, so a pretty broad range of experience. Um, were you expecting to go along this path? Were you kind of... Did you understand that you were going to tr test out all of these different areas before ending up where you no, came to? No, no, not at all. It, 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 I'm not sure it even makes sense in hindsight. But it, um, when I, I studied architecture at RMIT, and the, I was talking to Mel about this yesterday on another panel, the, the version of architecture that I was taught was one that was... It, the only assumption was that you would go into private practice as a designer. That was the pathway for you for everyone that went to RMIT. The idea that there was any other possibility of a t form of practice was never mentioned in five years of study. Um, after I graduated and um, did some further study, I went to Europe and realised, oh, wow, there's all these other ways of doing things, people that do things in all these different places and shape the city in the way that an architect does, equally valid equally impactful, but without even being an architect or, or so on. So that's really what led me to do future practice, was to try and document all those roles and positions to, to, I guess, demonstrate to others and to myself that there's this broad horizon of possibility beyond the private practice for having impact in the built environment. Yeah. Mm, interesting you mentioned that it was also personal um, as well as for others, this inquiry and documentation I feel like, um, you know, it's informed your advocacy for architects. Um, yeah, how much did you expect to be the advocate for architects and architecture thinking the way that you've turned out to be? Um, no, I, I don't know. That's a, good, that's a tricky question. Did I expect to be that? I mean, you try to, to be it, I think. You know, I, I'm really, I really believe in spreading that, you know, I'm, I will happily give that future practice lecture, which I've done practically every week for 10 years, to any new audience because I've, you know, I get a lot out of just putting that in front of people, especially students. So last week I did a talk for the um, first years at Melbourne Uni, coming, you know, very green, straight out of high school. And to tell um, there are more things to do that, that you can use your architecture degree for. So that's really what Architects After Architecture was about. All of these people who have studied architecture, who then go to operate in different ways, and to open up that um, set of possibilities was, you know, on the one hand, you, you don't want to be too confronting, because there's an implication there that 
being an architect is not enough. And that's, I'm certainly not saying that. We need good architects. We need people to occupy those, um, you know, more conventionally understood roles. But we also, I think, need to um, place those people within other aspects of the, of the built environment constellation so that we can have great people in government, great people writing briefs, great people working in um, other f f sectors to, to then, you know, understand design and have design education, I guess, placed within all of those different departments so that we can have an informed, high-level discussion and work together and achieve really amazing things. Yeah, and so we need activists and we need people on the outside to kind of throw rocks as well as being in those official roles. This brings me to a crossroads in the questions I'd like to ask you. One is to return back to how we can better advocate for our skills outside of just advocating amongst architects, because I think your work kind of prompts that question. You're very good at, and your work that you've done in your books seems to be very good at kind of communicating amongst ourselves that, yes, we are really good at operating outside of this field um, or the traditional field as it's understood. Uh, but yes, this... In the other avenue of questioning that I want you to answer at the same time, maybe, <laughs> is around being more inclusive of this definition of alternative architecture and alternative practice. What are we saying about traditional practice? Um, maybe we can call it traditional practice. I'm not sure if that's very generous to the really important other work that gets done in architecture or standard kind of work that gets done. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, the... The, the, the reason why I like speaking to architects, firstly, um, is because I think we are quite guarded in who we consider to be architects, right? That, you know, there's the, t there's the technical definition, you know, you can't even, if you're a graduate of, architect, you can't, of architecture, you can't call yourself an architect unless you're registered, there's, so there's that. But there's also this, this more uh, um, ambiguous sense that if you're, not, if you're operating in different ways, you're not an architect as, as advocates or as... And I think that, you know, we, and this is certainly a conversation I've had many times with co-editors, Harriet Harris, Roberta Macaccia, we wanted to expand that net and say, and welcome those people back in to architecture. So to, to say, no, this is legitimate form of practice. Um, we want to consider what you do as real. So uh, just a really quick example, um, Miriam Bellard, Kiwi-trained architect, the head of environment design for Rockstar Games, so this Grand Theft Auto, you know, video game type thing. They have 100 million players a day. And she designs all the environments that these people run around. So she's the sort of Frank Gehry of the digital world. But nobody's heard of her. We, we invited her to give a talk at Pratt. And she said, this is great. It's the first time I've ever given a talk at an architecture school. <laughs> <laughs> So it's about welcoming those types of people back in and saying, no, no, this is a legitimate form of practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I've forgotten the other half of your question. Inclusive practice, advocating for architects outside of architecture. I think you actually hit both of those, so that's fine. Um, but, but also, sorry, I remembered something, which is the speaking beyond architecture. That was the other half of it. And, and you know, for example... Um, with Stuart Harrison, Christine Phillips, Simon Knott, we had the Architects radio show um, here in Melbourne for a long time on Triple R. And I think that we, we didn't dumb down the architecture that just happened to be at 7pm on a Tuesday night when people were at home cooking dinner. And I forgot you are a part of that. Yes. <laughs> Great. And then so that's a sort of segue to speaking to Simona who 
has a show on PBS and, you know, it may not be explicitly about architecture. <laughs> Triple R. Pardon me. You used to be on PBS though, didn't you? All right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it's a very good segue, but we also have time for one question. Um, does anyone have a burning question? Otherwise, I have another one. Okay. I'm just going to make the most of the fact that we have someone from the MSD here, and so I'm going to ask them an MSD question. That's a warning. Okay, MSD question it is. You are an educator. Um, it's very confrontational. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to look elsewhere. I'm really... I don't feel like I need to turn my chair around. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what is... Um, okay, I'll ask to try and ask my question quickly. What you said about introducing students first thing in their degree to this idea that um, there are other, there's other work other than the traditional architecture job straight up. That would have blown my mind. Really wish you had been there a little bit earlier. That would have been nice. Um, but, you know, now we're going to have students coming out of students and graduates with a whole bunch of new skills with an understanding that they can do more than just step into the, your usual architecture practice. Um, what kind of pathways and opportunities are we pointing them towards? Um, what kind of support are we offering there? Are we going to get the same? Or can we acknowledge that graduates and students have some really, really good skills coming out of some of these degrees that are being put together and run? Um, and maybe we should just, to kind of confront some really serious issues, do we have a go? Yeah. What do you think? I, I mean, one of the things I've been doing lately the first couple of months of this year is going to meet people in practice, in industry, big and small, um, you know, inventive and conventional, and asking them, what are the types of people you're looking for? What are the types of graduates that you want to be hiring? And what keeps coming through is we don't need more authors. We don't need more um, individual creative visionaries. That's great. We need a couple of those, but we also need people who are just really good at organising and strategising and planning and meeting with people and talking to people and, and bringing things together and tying up the loose ends. And actually, um, I think if we can reframe how we teach architecture to, to be more, to recognise, I guess, the realities of the day-to-day -day work, um, then that version of architecture can also lead to other pathways um, into the public sector, into designing video games um, elsewhere. So I think, I think we've got, education's got to change. And it, it can't just be driven by industry. We need to make a position on where architecture ought to go and drive it there as well, yeah. All right, this is where I wrap you up, but you've wrapped yourself up. Um, let's do a musical chairs. Simona, would you like to swap chairs with Rory? And whilst that's happening, Oh, do you want to swap? You're do gonna... you want to be in this seat? No, I th thought that's what you said. Um, you're going to introduce Simona. I am. Right. I'll yep. stay here. I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm leaving. You're right. There we go. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll stand up. And everyone just do whatever they like. Okay. Uh, Simona Castricum, um, thank you for being here. Um, <laughs> we're really delighted to have you. Uh, Simona is a multidisciplinary creative, an academic working at the intersection of music and architecture. Her work explores queer and trans intersections in architecture, public space and civic life. 
Uh, that is an understatement. I highly recommend everyone look into the other work that Simona does. Would you like to join us in the centre? And I will leave. I'm going to keep this one. Select one from the pile. Hello. Hi, Simona. Hey, Lovely Robbie. to see you. I don't have a list of questions. Um, but Who needs it? We're both broadcasters. We <laughs> can just right. talk We're shit. Just, yeah. <laughs> hey, welcome to the show. That was the, that was the plan. <laughs> exactly. Jerry Springer. Simona and Rory. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the show. Um, I, the preparation I did for, for this conversation was minimal but very enjoyable. I listened to your album. Um, I, and I it very much got into the headspace of your music and your performance um, and before coming here, so immediately before coming here. So I feel already connected. Um, and I just perhaps wanted to start by asking, um, you know, how does that world, that version of your, your um, self connect to your architecture version of yourself? Or are they... Are they you, yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, I don't know, I spent a lot of time, you know, mostly in architecture kind of like rendering worlds, you know, as like, you know, in 3D modelling and, um, you know, that was great. Like most of the time I was just like listening to like sick techno doing that and um, the techno was like more interesting than the, the worlds I was building for, you know, whoever along the way, um, although I did work on some good projects. But, um, but the, the sick techno was sort of like more interesting and I don't know, I wanted to be a musician. I, 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 I wanted to be a musician since I saw Sylvester on Countdown in 1979, you know, and I wanted to be an architect since Dad took me to the, you know, like Collins Place, you know, like when I was seven, you know, so. And I needed a job that would sustain, like, like my parents weren't, weren't going to let me be a pop star, you know? So I needed, like, this idea of the real job, okay? But, like, music is actually a real job. But the connection between music and, you know, like, architecture is that we're both world builders, right? We're all world builders in some form. And that, like... I think, like, through, through doing my PhD, and I think also, like, a, a really significant work that I saw was um, City. This idea of rendering worlds and that, like, music is a way of rendering worlds and that, like, the album that I was working on at the time, Panic Desire, which perhaps is the one that you're listening to, was written about this city. It's, it's written about my experience of this city, how I'm afraid of it, how I'm, how I'm excited by it, how there are spaces that I'm trying to find of safety, of belonging, of permanence as a queer and a trans person. Um, but that experience is one that, like the city's a very hostile environment for, for queer and trans people. So I wanted, I guess, to unpack that experience of urbanism, of gender, of sexuality through music because it, did, it felt like the only way to do it, you know, like the way that we experience joy or trauma it can be best articulated through something like music or through something like art. That's sort of like the way that we sort of understand effective conditions and we, and we all have archives of emotion that every building sort of gives us, you know, through our experience. 
it's this this wonderful phrase, making worlds, um, which you use to link those two practices, the, ar the architectural and the and the musical. Um, where does the, where are those worlds made? It, I mean, it seems to be it sounds to be like quite a profound idea that the world might actually be made in your imagination or in your understanding of yourself and the world, or um, that it's a sort of date that you get to. Not yeah, well, I think like watching like early '80s cinema and and listening to late '70s like. Um, like new wave and electronic music was all about this, like the dystopia, right? And I think if you're a queer and trans person, like this is the dystopia, you know, I think for a lot of people, like the cities that we live in are the dystopia. But I think like the inherent part about, you know, and I explore this in my PhD, which is like this idea of queering and this idea of transing, it's like a sort of like well understood, I guess, um, idea that, that these are, um, sort of exercises in futurity and in opportunity, like the futurity of, of queerness and the futurity of transness, because um, we destabilise the worlds just simply th by walking through them because people just go, what? You know, and it's just like it, it totally fucks the binaries that we live within, right? So they're actually tactics of survival, so that's one way in which they're envisaged, right? Because we've got to get through safely. But then also it's like when we see that experience reflected in things like cinema or sung through like lyrics or whatever, it's just kind of like, oh, well, then that's the way that I'm going to process my stuff because I can't do that in practice, you know, because you're, you're stuck doing this very this very neoliberal capitalist thing, you know, and so there's no space for you to sort of deal with any of those things. Like you've got to go and do a PhD or you've, for me, it was like I have to go and be a musician, but it just so turns out all my music is about, you know, the cities and the worlds that I live in and the politics of that. One of the... Um I mean, you, there's something you said right there which I thought was super interesting um, around the, the kind of limits of practice and, and needing to then find other um, avenues to explore those ideas. Do, do you, are those limits of practice, like um, of architecture, I mean, are they set in stone or do you think that they're kind of self-defined by the profession and actually we ought to stretch those and, and start to incorporate other techniques or other m means of working musical whatever, um, which could help to, I guess, loosen that... Um well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like... I mean, I got out of practice because, I don't know, I mean, I, I just... I think practice is limited by capitalism. It's, la it's limited by, you know, like, I don't know, like, I, I, I sort of feel like architecture's right. been value-managed out of capitalism like 15 years ago, so I don't even know why we're still in it, you know? It's like, um, maybe let's do something else. We need like more radical situations like in order to change things. Like I'm not a centrist and I'm not a conservatist. Like I am a radical. I do believe in that we need, um, you know, like, but, but like more radical um, like approaches to the way that we kind of break down some of the institutions, the laws, the way, the way things that govern you know, society and architecture is a part of administrative violence that does place these conditions. So I do take an abolitionist stance towards architecture as much as I would towards 
you know, like lots of other things that are, uh, are sort of like ruling so many parts of our lives. Um, and yeah, music just fits that model as well. But it's about changing minds. And I think we need more radical ways of changing minds because I don't think we can change minds within the model of capitalism, neoliberalism and architecture as it just wants to sit. Rory, this is your last question, unless you would like to hand it to the audience. Um, thank you, Sarah. I, 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 I would like to hand it to the audience, actually. We've got a question over here. Discussion, very interesting. Um, I have a question in regards to both of your uh, comments and opinion about who is an architect and um, the situation with capitalism and the industry. Uh, my question is, don't you think that it is a systemic, uh, I don't want to say problem, but it's a systemic challenge that Architectural Registration Board becomes this authority of deciding who is an architect, regardless of the potentials of the individuals. And of course, that feeds into the practice as well and Australian Institute of Architects. So don't you think that it's a systemic situation, systemic challenge, that, we, that systemic problem that we need to challenge rather than saying this is industry, this is... Thank you. Simona, do you want to respond? ...of oppression, <laughs> you know, of... Um, of ableism, of class, of of um, of racism, of um, you know, of homophobia, of of all, like all of the things, you know, like it's it's an inherent part of of the administrative um, violence that happens, whether it be the legal system or whether it be the health system. Um, all of these things shape our worlds, right? But who can be a practitioner within any of these things? Um, yeah, and it's and the only reason I think why we would possibly need to be registered is about being sued. Apparently, I think like I mean I did the course and I failed the course and I wear it as a badge of honor. But like it feels like when I did the like the course to like do it, like the only interesting thing was like the person teaching it just grabbing a wad of paper all the time and being like, "You just have to cover your ass." And I was like, can, is that an option in question four? <laughs> like, is that D? Can I just answer D all the way through? Because, like, the wad of paper, I don't know how that translates to, like, talking to the tiler on site. <laughs> but basically it's bullshit. And, like, like, I am an architect. Sue me. Where's my wad of paper? Well, I have a wad of paper that I bought from Officeworks that has no words on it and I haven't opened it up yet, but like, that's not going to stop me getting sued. Simona Kastrikum. <laughs> we haven't really factored into this procession, this clapping, but it's nice. Um, I'm also going to say that that clapping was definitely for Rory. Uh, and my segue is that, yeah, I mean... Simone, you really brought to our attention that to focus on our interests um, and skills to use as tactics is really important and that's somewhat radical and your skills are in music and that is radical and it is having consequence. Um, so thanks for bringing that to the centre of the circle. Um, next up and the person that you get to interview is Miriam McGarry. Uh, Miriam is a researcher, a writer 
and interested in the built and neutral environments. Natural. She runs a podcast, Hidden Cities. I mean, neutral environments are very, very curious too. Uh, she runs a podcast, Hidden Cities, about housing affordability and has completed a PhD on the impact of Mona on cultural policy and urban planning. Uh, please welcome Miriam to the stage. Hi, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to I meet feel like this is the first time we've met. I didn't get here early enough to do that admin, <laughs> but um, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> From one broadcaster to another, you know, again, you know, like podcasting, and you know, it's like I'm a, I do a volunteer radio show sometimes on a Friday night when everyone's a bit cooked. But like, you know, like you, for instance, do a podcast, and that's always for like purpose-built kind of interaction and 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 listening and engage kind of like work as a structure. I might be a broadcaster, but I'm highly edited when I do it, so I'm not as charming. Um, freestyle as you, but um, yeah, I can't. To be honest, I kind of did the podcast because I um, I'd finished a PhD. I realised I cared about housing affordability. I couldn't afford. I was like, oh, I wish I'd done planning or economics. I can't afford to go back to university. Um, how can I speak to the smartest people and get them to explain these ideas to me without having to pay anyone? Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know you can get grants, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've since learned this. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it took me five years to figure that out too. But anyway, continue. So I mean, yeah, no one paid me to make the podcast, but I did get to talk to all these like brilliant people that synthesise these really complex ideas um, in this way. That I was like, oh, okay, I think I understand this. Um, why I went for a podcast is kind of absurd. I don't know. I'd never done any broadcasting in my life. I just thought that that was a good way to have a chat with someone and then maybe reach a slightly broader audience, I guess. And that relationship that you're building with your audience, do you find that it is changing minds, that it is like you're actually getting some, some real traction and some real feedback? Um, kind of. I think I was actually so self-conscious about putting it together. I really like hit my name's not really on it. This is the first time I've ever spoken about it in public. Hello. Um, so, uh, but I've had some really nice feedback and it's like, I really thought it would be like my mum and dad and some of my friends listening to it. Turns out none of my friends have been really nice feedback that it's, um, I guess I was kind of like, oh, I want to look at housing, but I don't want to just look at it through a, um, economic or planning lens, I want to kind of bring in sociology and all these different things together and try and make sense of something that I was finding hard to understand. Yeah, and did the DIY aspect of podcasting, like, it make it easier to actually, like, spend a whole lot of time on those particular topics and you could really immerse yourself within them? Yeah, and I'm, like, a really nerdy researcher as well. Like, I love to kind of dig into something. And, yeah, I guess it, because it was just me tinkering away like often in my bedroom during lockdown. Um, also the pandemic, not that I want to celebrate anything about it, but it did mean that I had access to these amazing people because it was over Zoom, whereas I think if it had been outside of that, it would have been actually quite difficult to find time to meet up with people that were interstate or overseas or just very impressive and busy. Yeah. So like some of the titles I guess you work with, particularly with like hidden cities or... I think there's one, the failed cities. Like, they're very kind of provocative in that sense that you really have to capture 
I guess, a, an idea through those titles. So what are some, what are some hidden cities, I guess, that you've, you've uncovered through your work? Uh, good question. I guess I was interested in, like, the, like obviously you, you see a house or you see an apartment building or a block of flats, but what are the um, policies, economic conditions, social... Uh, and to me, I guess that's the hidden stuff for you. <laughs> no, 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 that's so fine. But, like, um, and in terms of the... F I'm, I'm interested in that idea of the failed city and the idea of the dystopia and how through your work do you... Because sometimes we can find, like, for instance, with my PhD, like, I, I spent five years on it and four years of it was, like, the trauma and then I found, like, the hope in it and sometimes, like, we're, when we're dealing with the problem, like, where do we actually get to the hope in what we're doing? So, and I, th I feel like that's the utopia that we're trying to, or the, the world that we are trying to build as, as a podcaster, as a researcher. Like, what have you uncovered that, that is that, that hope, that utopia? Ooh, yeah. Um, I almost want to frame that as what's next, you know? So the utopia, the... Where is this research going? Maybe that's another way to look at it. Yeah, uh, good, both good questions. Um, I would love if someone would tell me what to do next or like how to fix the housing system. Turns out seven episodes of a podcast did not um, miraculously fix the housing system or fix the crisis. Um, I guess uh, it was an act of kind of unearthing and uncovering to try and piece it together to begin with. Um, and I'm hoping that some of the, like, kind of next step elements of it is, like, if people have a greater understanding of feel differently about a, a political stance about it in an upcoming election. So um, part of making the podcast was because in the 2018 election, I, I kind of was very confused about the media messaging around negative gearing and what, that if we got rid of it, it would mean that the whole economy would fall apart. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound right to me, but I don't know enough to say that it's wrong. And so I think part of making the podcast was being like, well, if someone can just step through this, clearly maybe just being informed is like kind of almost enough of an act of hope because then you've got something tangible and grounding to act upon. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the work with Mona and how that was sort of informing, I think, something to do with... Um, that was something to do with housing affordability as well, wasn't it? Like, yeah. Yeah, well, it kind of... It wasn't meant to be. Um, so I started doing a PhD, I think, in 2013 about um, the impact of Mona on kind of public space, urban planning, cultural policy in Tassie. Um, and then by the time I was finishing PhD, obviously, house prices were rising, um, Airbnb had really come to Tasmania, the whole landscape was shifting quite dramatically, um, which is not necessarily a direct corresponding relationship to Mona. Obviously, those things were happening kind of nationally and globally in a shift in housing anyway. Um, but yeah, by the time I, I finished the PhD, it was just a very different landscape to um, to be working in, I guess, and to be living in, in Tasmania. So I'm from Tassie. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't 
my thesis didn't really look at um, kind of ideas, ideas of gentrification um, and I was looking more at Hobart CBD than the surrounding suburbs or Berrydale, Glenorchy, where Mona is based. Um, but I, I guess that kind of planted a little seed and then from there I was like, hmm, I'd like to know more about that. How can I know more about that? I've got a segue. Sounds like Jump you need in. to publish some of this research that you've done. Um, what, we're just going to let that sit there in the air and ask if anyone would like to ask either of our speakers a question. Um, do we have a microphone? Hi, hi, thanks for that. It was really good. And I could talk about my thoughts on negative gearing, but the public forum is not the best. The question is about the radical action standard project feasibility. It takes eight years. You got the first four years only numbers. You calculate highest and best use based on the planning controls, what's permittable, permissible, and most valuable build form outcome that would occur at that land. And then you build this hypothetical cash flow and you say, I'm going to spend this much money to do this at this time and this time and this time. And based on that, you derive this land is worth this much. If, because I can only build this based on the planning controls. Now, this is the first four years. The next four years, this is a hypothetical development, it's called the build form. And then you have a project manager who thinks he's a hammer and everything else is a nail. Everything needs to be value managed. Everything needs is an expense. So my question is why architects are so afraid of finance? Why you're trying to convince investors that building CLT is good for mental health instead of saying, Building CLT will optimize your cost of capital to generate higher risk-adjusted returns. Why are afraid of the finance and numbers? Why? Why you don't do it? Because it's hard. Like, why stop? Why afraid? Why stop? I don't get a sense that either of you are particularly afraid of the numbers. No, I, I guess like when I talk of radical change, I'm being like architects should stop participating in designing prisons. That's what that, the land, like what, what, whose land? So, um, yeah, and uh, but like my experience, I think in like working in like way back in the day when I was working, say on something like schools and trying to like push back you know, by the time we got to tender on, and, and it was just like things are getting completely value managed out. So I don't think that architects are basically like afraid, like we're having fights all the time, like trying to keep stuff in, but it's just like, how many times can you have that fight? And like, you have to fight another way. You've got to find another way to, to change, change the system. So I'm just going to write techno and you're going to do podcasts. <laughs> what, what, what? Um, well, I guess if we're thinking about architecture as a kind of expanded practice here and how to bring, how to intersect architecture with different fields of knowledge, I guess it's, it's a lot to expect an architect to be both professionally brilliant as a designer and have full literacy of all these financial systems as well. So I think maybe it's about like combining different skill sets with different groups of people to be able to navigate and like exploit potential fractures within some of these systems to have better built outcomes and financial outcomes. I don't know what these are. <laughs> Did you speak to anyone who had these kind of skills in your podcast? Uh, 
Stay tuned for series two. <laughs> oh, no, no giveaways. Well, uh, that is time. Um, does anyone else have any other questions or we should probably move on and introduce our next speaker. Can everyone join me in thanking Simona Castricum? Enter the Circle is Andrew Publishing House Euro. Andrew McKenzie is the co-director of Euro Publications and has written for a variety of magazines and newspapers for over two decades. His architectural consultancy, City Lab, advises on design competitions and procurements. I actually recommend you read his larger bio. It's very long, um, but we're very glad that he's heading up Euro um, and is no longer in a garage, uh, which we just remembered. How many years ago was that? Uh, a, few, a few years ago, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it's a it's, long story. It's nice to have a bit more space to spread out. Um, over to you. Hi, Andrew. Nice to meet you. Uh, hello. <laughs> um, so I did, a obviously, a Google before this event. It's dangerous. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to start by asking, like, how, how do you see yourself in relationship to architecture? You're obviously a publisher and you work in a, um, a city lab, but... How do you see yourself in relation to architectural practice? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very good and very broad question. And I suppose it's, like a lot of things, um, kind of vacillates between being completely committed and completely engaged and completely um, kind of burrowed in like a worm into the whole um, kind of culture of it. Um, and at the same time, kind of feeling like at any moment... It'd be great to leave it all behind and do something else. I have a great fantasy about having a bar and just running a bar. That's it. Um, but uh, I think I, I, I suppose one thing to say is that I, I, I kind of respect, or at least I have patience for um, the formalities that may involve lots of money and a degree of long-term kind of consequence. Um, so on the one hand, I. You know the whole history of um, registration and the professionalization of the of the practice has lots of kind of boring seedy sides to it, which is where you know grabbing that corner and holding on to it and keeping people out of it, so you can you know charge your fees and have a comfortable professional life. But I think there's also another side to it, which is I just see a lot of architects having to do lots of upskilling all the time, learning about new materials and technologies, new new policies. Um, as well as lots of kind of soft skills and, and, and social codes as well. So I, I guess I have some tolerance for having some definitions and some lines and boundaries. And I kind of like move in and out of those. But I'm not a registered architect, so, you know, or maybe I'll just say it now so, so it, you know, it gets sued. I'm a registered architect, yeah. It's been a closely held secret for a long time. Come and get me, guys. <laughs> And I guess when you, like you just mentioned those kind of soft skills there, if someone here was listening and wanted to get into publishing or the kind of work you do at City Work, City Lab, sorry, what are the soft skills that you've had to bring into those practices? Um, I suppose primarily it's about trying to find connections between those, the kind of boundary territory of architecture and everything else. So really about how architecture connects to societies and people how it connects to environments and ecologies, how it connects to economics and finance, how it connects to policies and politics. To me, that's where the excitement is. I'm, I'm less interested in what you might call the kind of the architecture and where it intersects and intersects and share an interest in. I think that's where architecture has the opportunity to shine with, with a larger constituency of people. 
Um, and I guess, yeah, having a bit of a like stalk on your LinkedIn, there's some, there's some clear pathways and then there's some jumps around as well. Um, I'm definitely someone who's had some unusual jumps, but what's been the biggest unexpected direction you've taken or are there moments that you can mark as here's a jump sideways, here's a planned move? Yeah, I suppose um, really quickly one jump is finding yourself in the middle of Mongolia filming a documentary and uh, wondering what time on Channel 4 this will be aired, probably 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, It had nothing to do with architecture or art. I came from an arts background. I did an arts course at Goldsmiths and was an artist for eight or nine years. Um, It's kind of been more, not so much jumps, but more meander. And it's where kind of things have piqued my curiosity and moved in the direction of. And I think somewhere, I have to say, you know, when you change careers or you look at different ways that you practice, it's always amazes me how actually there's kind of fundamental car- parts of your character that carries through. And I think for all of us, no matter what we do, there are fundamental things of your character which may be seeded right from childhood, which drive what you do. And for me, one of them, um, to be totally candid, being the youngest of seven kids, uh, it's like when you spend your childhood kind of never quite being noticed, what you want to do is find something that you're good at. Force and so you see something and you almost do that quite well. I'll have a go at that. So I think I think the, there are these kind of human characteristics, and everyone's different. Some people's human characteristics are about being bold and brash, and some are, are about being a background worker and and, and whatever. And it, it almost seems to be regardless of whether they're working in finance or architecture or agriculture. Um, you know, different characteristics kind of win through. Don't know if I answered that question at all, actually. No, that was a delightful, meandering answer. Um, I'm also interested to know how your two kind of main paths of your practice at the moment intersect with each other. Do you use one to inform the other? Yes. Is it all about communications? What's the kind of... So I suppose just to kind of unpack that a little bit, so there's, 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 the, there's the publishing, which is pretty conventional standard, uh, making books with people and telling stories with people. Um, and then the other is City Lab, which is uh, a consultancy that advises on competitions. But really, it's more about bringing people together, competitors with jury, jury with clients, and, and, and kind of sharing a story around a, a project and also setting boundaries around a project. Um, and I would say that the, 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 that's the biggest connection. It's not a really a formal connection. I mean, they're two separate businesses. They're two separate ABNs. And they're quite separate mindsets when you, when you start into them because they've got totally different r- risk profiles. Um, but I think the, the common ground there between them is e- even big projects, even big clients. I'm always amazed at how the, slight, the, the subtlest of story can drive and propel decisions more so than any number of QS reports or engineering reports or policy decisions. That actually, when you get a client together with some smart people and we're like, for instance, building a brief for a, a competition, uh, that's like writing a book or writing a story. Um, so, yeah, I, I think all the years in the wilderness earning fuck all money as a publisher uh, or as a, as a magazine editor, um, kind of get, getting a skill together around how to tell a story and quite technically, like how to keep a sentence short, 
how to keep a sentence, you know, active, how to, you know, follow a journey, you know, bring someone on a story. They're actually, I think, something that are really embedded in projects. And I think actually it's one of the modules that architects probably, having never taught architecture in complete kind of, um, you know, I do think that the capacity to tell a story and learn the power of rhetoric in the right hands, a successful um, who, in a way, who doesn't have their own way of communicating and 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 and, and getting through all the crap because there's so much crap in architecture. I mean, in, in delivering a building, there's so much, but actually, have being able to tell a line through there and bring the client and then some some of the uh, 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 suppliers and the, and the, t the technicians and all the contractors to bring them on a journey. That that's every time it's writing a book, really. And for you, do you think that not being a registered architect gives you a different kind of insight, in, particularly in that city lab process? Is there strength of being both inside and outside of that practice? Possibly. And it, it kind of connects to a larger question, which is, um, and, and it's kind of been um, talked a little bit already, but the connection between, I guess, architecture and other things, and particularly in buildings, um, economics, and, 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 and a whole bunch of different energies that, that people bring to what they do. Um, so I think, um, uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I lost my train of thought there a little bit. <laughs> um, and I guess for people sitting and listening to this, what would you have thought if you were sitting and watching someone talk about this when you were a student? Is this a pathway that you would have wanted to end up at? Is this a surprise that you're here? And just keeping in mind as you answer that, that yes. this is probably your last question. That's fine. That's fine. Um, uh, look, I suppose I've always liked to feel like you're doing something and, and manage myself um, doing something quite different. But the, the, like you get some challenges, you work with a bunch of people, you manage to t push aside lots of crap and irrelevant things. You get to what's really important about the thing and you do your best to do that thing. Um, so I, I think, you know, yeah, somebody looking, looking forward, to, should, should I follow a trajectory like that? I would say more about follow the things that, I mean, it's, a, it's a cliche, follow things that, you've, that, you are in, that, make you, that you, you're passionate about and that you think you might, not even now, but in the future, you might be able to do well uh, and just follow that um, and not worry too much about whether it fits into which category because it will kind of follow you. I sort of am a great believer that if you, you, know, you work hard and you keep working hard and you do things with integrity, you're going to end up somewhere good in the end. You are. I think that's a good summary. And I also was reflecting on the interview that really has happened here. You're speaking about using your skills, identifying what they are, making the most of them, putting them into practice. And I think, Miriam, you've absolutely done that with this podcast. You have identified that you don't have some skills and you're going to go out and find some people that do. So uh, can everyone join me in thanking Miriam? Um, now, we like to keep our audience and our speakers on their toes. So, surprise, you will be interviewing Sarah Lynn Rees. Oh, right, okay. I've just spent the goddamn afternoon working out what this guy does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Um, I'm not sorry at all, actually. You I think this, this is up, really, really great. Um, so, a woman uh, leading design services. She is regularly engaged in advice, uh, regularly engaged to advise industry, universities, governments, 
all on appropriate processes and protocols and also teachers at MADA. Um, obviously, again, this is not all Sarah does and please enlighten us to what else Sarah does because you have not prepared and I think that <laughs> might be the best person to ask the questions. Over to you. Uh, well, of course, um, Sarah has been um, uh, working diligently for quite a few years now trying to find the connections between her passion for architecture and her identity and the wider identity that, that you're involved in, um, that you come from. And I mean, I'm really delighted to have this surprise, I have to say, because and I'm just going to use it totally exploitatively to try and work out something for myself that I'm totally trying to work out. Um, just completely, honestly, like the work I do, we, we, we're constantly trying to work out some big questions in relation to traditional owners uh, and First Nation people. And, and so this is a great opportunity. So <laughs> um, let me start by asking you, um, when, when you made the decision to study architecture, um, you know, presumably you understood that like, like the handful of prof other professions there highly regulated and kind of highly controlled. Did, did, no, why I, did you go into that? <laughs> I didn't know it was that. Oh, you didn't? Okay, no. all right. So what were your expectations of architecture when you started? Uh, um, the, the reason I chose to study architecture is because it's a complex problem that you both design and solve. And um, dad's a builder, classic cliche, but I grew up around him watching the design thinking process and watching the transition of that going from paper to um, the workshop, which was in our backyard. Yeah. Um, and so I was really interested in how things go together. Which, and, you know, that carries on in my own life now. I don't want to buy something if I could make it myself, which is, you know, a very frustrating process for everyone around me. But, um, <laughs> like, I want to know how stuff works. But, it, the, I, you know, it's one of the most complex problems in the world when you layer... Well, in my opinion, I don't know, but when you're actually laying a creative process over regulation, over complex socio-political contexts, mm. it, it is a really complicated problem to create built environments that people can see themselves reflected in. And we haven't... Everyone can see themselves reflected. I'd say, probably go further is that we've done a manifestly terrible job of representing yeah. more than 5% of the population, you would say. Um, so, do, do, now that you kind of... Let, you know, you left college and now you're working at JCB um, and... Obviously, JCB do a whole wide range of, of projects. Um, do you find that that you have to? Is there any is there any shifting of hats when you're when you're working across projects? You know, you know, presumably some projects that just have a really let's just say a really low profile in terms of where the opportunities are in terms of First Nations. Sometimes it'll be much more foregrounded. So presumably you're kind of shifting you shifting gear a little bit between the wider kind of sociological and, and cultural questions uh, of place and, and and being, and at the same time door details and and and, and facade systems and and spatial arrangements. Do you, does it all come together as one harmonious um, oh. unity for you, or, or is it...? I mean, I never want to do a lighting schedule ever again in my life. <laughs> Please, no one made me do that. Um, but you did tell me once, driving in a car, that you actually quite... You wanted to learn the discipline of yeah, yeah. certain things about how the details work and how things come together. Well, that, for me, comes from a position of having... When I was in my undergrad, having certain teachers that weren't architects and being really frustrated by the fact that they were supposed to be teaching me how to architect and they didn't know how to architect. And so, um, and it also feeds into a wider, there's a wider under fundamental understanding about why I think that's important. 
And it's because, well, we were talking about this earlier, so I'm really sorry. Um, but it's the idea that if you want to change something, if you see something or be in that system and change change, especially the things that I'm interested in in terms of indigenising the built environment. And so um, being in it and, and being able to advocate for traditional custodians, I need to be in it. I need to understand it. And I need to not only understand the general idea of what it is that we do, for me, I need to understand every single system that intersects with architecture as well because you need to figure out where the power moments are to flip the switch, create change, do something slightly differently that then has a flow and impact for everything else. Like, I sit it here at M Pavilion like, for five years now. We've been doing black architecture, subtle plug, next week, Monday to Wednesday. Um, <laughs> come to the show. Yeah, come to the show. Um, and we've been having these conversations forever and I don't know how many times I've said to people, you know, like, it's not just architecture that needs to change. It's every system in the process that needs to change. And can someone from planning please just, like, change the planning system? Because to me, the biggest change at scale that could happen is that. Yeah. And so we've just changed um, the National Competency Standards for Architecture. So the First Nations Advisory Working Group at the Institute has been working with the AACA. There's a lot of acronyms. I'm very sorry. Yeah. Um, and for the first time, essentially, if anyone doesn't know, this document governs what it means to be an architect. So there's, um, it's, historically, it's never had any Indigenous performance criteria in it whatsoever. And so this document now, and I've learnt the power of a document through this process because I yep. don't think I've fully appreciated totally. the power of a document before. Totally. Documents are um, important. That document governs what architecture schools have to teach and therefore what they have to prove when they go through their accreditation process every five years. What you have to prove at the point of registering that you are competent mm. in, registering as an architect, and all of your ongoing CPD. So historically, no Indigenous content in this document ever. And now it has eight First Nations-specific performance criteria, which means every university in Australia is now having to pivot and incorporate Indigenous content in an appropriate way in their degree. And if they don't, they don't keep their accreditation. Yeah. So to me, sort of cycling back around to the point, you've got to be in the system to understand where the points of power are in order to influence them and then create systemic change. Because you can advocate from the bottom up to the cows come home. That doesn't yep. mean you're going to create wider change. No, I totally agree. Um, so, you know, alongside being an architect, you are an advocate and you are pretty, you know, you're torn between a million different things all the time. So you're very, very busy. And part of that kind of, I suppose, reflects the fact that there's a, there's a question kind of around, broadly, not with you, but with, with I guess, the industry. And I've discovered it directly myself with, end, with projects where everybody has an intent, a good, well, a lot of people I speak to have good intention around traditional owners and around what we should do. And the amount of comp every single competition, sooner or later, the client says, what are we doing with traditional owners? I was like, well, you should have fucking started, started that before I got here for a start. You should have been working on that for two years. But... Um, but there is this question, and then we're, it's always this challenge around the intent, the intentions there. But then the challenge I ha I, I'm going to working through this is that, okay, so I know there's Sarah and there's Jeff, and I could probably, you know, there's Kevin and New South Wales could do something, and there's this person, that person, there's various people, um, and then there's and then there's different kind of consultancy groups that are that are slowly kind of like developing. But it's it's there's, there's not many, many, and so I guess my question is, how do we accelerate? things so that the what's already now latently a, a key interest and like nobody's really going to push back if you have a sensible proposition no one's going to push back on an appropriate kind of engagement and process if you approach it sensibly how do we accelerate that change so that you're not running around like a blue arse fire every day of the week and there's a few there's a few more Sarah Lynn Reese's out there 
Uh, yeah, okay. Well, firstly, come to a talk at Black Architecture. Uh, we're doing one on EOI's RFTs and competitions. Um, Shit, man, i got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Five till seven next Tuesday evening. Sarah, um, you've just got one minute to finish your plug. All right, just great. Um, <laughs> it's an important plug. <laughs> you can have two minutes. Thanks. Um, but also... Uh, it, it, you know, you've got to step back and look at the processes that are in place. Yes, a client ideally should have a relationship with a traditional custodian. If they don't, help and foster that relationship. The entire brief should be developed seconds. in partnership with traditional custodians. Yep. Um, and there should be a traditional custodian on the jury. If the project is one of a public nature that has significance that needs to be informed by traditional custodian voices, which is probably every public project. Okay. Um, then you need to have a brief that's been developed. You need to have engagement that happens with traditional custodians during that competition phase. You, not every team is going to be able to engage with traditional custodians. Probably totally. requirements are an issue, all that sort of thing. So therefore, something like the um, yourself or the client needs to engage with the traditional custodians and provide a package of information to the teams about what's appropriate for them to do and what content they might be able to explore in the context of the competition with limited cultural authority. Then there needs to be a feedback loop that's implemented into that. So you know how you have design review sessions during yeah. the competition? Having a traditional custodian voice as a part of that would be useful. Complex, but useful, especially when you're looking at shortlisted designs. You, you, have, just, you have just kind of opened up 50 questions more. So it's just, why did you do this? Eight minutes, for God's sakes. Okay. I mean, that's just my opinion, but... No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I think Sarah's done really effectively here is actually detailed exactly how to do something. I've done a lot of talking here tonight about how we can practice alternative practice and these different ways of doing it, but it's these real tangible examples of how we can put it into practice that's really important. I can't important. believe I don't get the in interview. Well, you can Come now. on, seriously, on. Alexis. I'm just well, actually, <laughs> take a seat, Sarah. Uh, keeping everyone on their toes, um, uh, I would like to introduce the person that Sarah is interviewing. Am I interviewing someone? You have followed... <laughs> requirement here for me to leave. I was informed that you have 10 minutes. Um, and as such... Oh uh, if I miss my flight, you're going to buy me a new flight, all right? <laughs> uh, as such, I would like to introduce our next speaker, Alexis Callagas. Oh, who's, uh, I've done this to myself, haven't I? <laughs> um, because we're jumping straight over what we had intended for a break, I welcome everyone to stand up and sit back down again. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here from Tanya Davich. Okay. I've ruined everyone's plans, including my own standard. Um, All right. I'm just going to quickly introduce yeah, it, Alexis. Okay. Alexis is the head of public <laughs> programs at uh, Mongolo and lead... Slightly dyslexic, comes out right now. Thank you. Belongolo and leads an advanced architecture studies unit at MARTA. His interests lie in the complex economic, social and technological forces reshaping our experience of urban space and home. Again, it's very brief. I'll hand over to Sarah. Thank you for being so dynamic. Hi. How are you going? Good. Thanks, Let's take this back to a fundamental level. Who are you? <laughs> Obviously, I know you. Quick fire questions. Come on. Uh, I'm not an architect. Okay, great. Let's put that out there. Did you study architecture? No. Okay. How are you here? Why have you been invited to this context? Uh, well, some of the organisers are former. Um, but no, I mean, I now find myself working 
adjacent to architecture and architects um, through a very convoluted path that I stepped Andrew through in quite, quite <laughs> <laughs> careful detail yesterday. So, uh, yeah. Do you want to tell us what that path is? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I studied arts law and I worked in government initially, uh, but in, in part of government that has nothing whatsoever to do with the built environment in foreign policy. Uh, and... I mean, I, I, kind, I kind of asked myself a bit, uh, how did I get from there to here? Partly because now I'm working on uh, projects in Canberra and sort of back revisiting old haunts in a way. Um, but I think I've always been interested in cities and, I, and I'd, I was always interested in having a more kind of creative output. And I think I worked in government before um, government discovered design thinking and uh, strategic design and all those kind of cool creative things. Um, I think actually the department I worked in brought in uh, a, a kind of design arm to, to the policy process right after I left. Um, and perhaps if that had happened when I was still there, maybe I, I wouldn't be here now. Um, but I, otherwise I was kind of looking around and seeing people that were about 20 years older than me doing the same job as me, just with less people reviewing their work and kind of thought there must be some more interesting things to do out there. And because I was working in foreign policy, I went overseas, which is kind of the natural path. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, I think I'd always had this interest and during my master's, I had an opportunity to, to do an exchange program in Boston and was able to take some classes um, in urban planning and urban development and that kind of... I think lit a little fire under me that I didn't really realise was there before. And I'm going to ask you a question that you were going to ask me. What do you think about that travelling overseas and that experience? Wait, but that was my question I was going to ask Tanya now. So. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> damn, who was that one? Um, I mean, it's funny for me to think about that because I had absolutely no connection to the architecture world here before I left. Um, I knew some, like I had friends that studied architecture in university, but... All I really knew was that they often stayed up late um, building models. Like that was about as as much as I knew about what it meant to, to be an architect. Um, um, I guess the filling the tank, which is uh, an architecture and urban design practice, but um, focusing on social social design projects predominantly, and, and very active in publishing exhibitions and that kind of work as well, film. Um, so I kind of entered this world of architecture in a very unorthodox way. And I also, um, so my, my experience of the, the education side of architecture was at ETH in Zurich, which I've come to realise having now taught at a couple of universities in Melbourne that that was very atypical um, from a, a kind of resource, resourcing perspective. Then I think also um, what was kind of seen as possible for people studying architecture to move into um, afterwards. And even the fact that uh, the principles of urban think tank were tenured professors there was kind of unusual in its, in its own way. And so I think being overseas probably exp exposed me to this expanded practice um, of architecture in a way that if I was here, I probably would never have come across it. And so being architecture adjacent or part of architecture, however we're defining architecture, I think you only have to... It's only architect, right, that's protected, the term. We're all architectures. Um, what do you see as the biggest thing that needs to change within the industry or the way we practice or what we build or construct or design, being in the position you're in now? 
It's a small question. <laughs> I mean, it's hard because I, I think that I, I've always been a little bit on the outside looking in, um, either working in a design practically, um, design consultancy, which in itself was kind of this odd thing that um, the architects and the landscape architects and the interior architects would all kind of look to us when we we're sitting at a table and be like, why are, the, why are these people here? Um, and then now I think working for a developer, um, kind of interacting with architects in a completely different way again, I, I think that, I don't know if there's an, a problem with the architecture industry here, it's, it's more probably a, a problem with the development industry, to be honest. Um, what do you want to change in the development industry? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I, I mean, I think this question earlier around why are architects scared of um, financial um, models and feasibility? Like, I, I don't think that's the case. I think people, architects are actually quite aware of how development works often, but don't have the agency to change it. And I think that um, I was probably more uh, critical of developers uh, before I, actually, I started working for one and realised that how challenging the, the broader system in which developers work uh, is as well. Um, I mean, I think I'm lucky that I work for a developer that uh, maybe has a model that um, means that projects, that we can take time on projects and also uh, has an interest in, in doing projects that are more prototypical and so it's not this kind of churn of, of standard, um, standard uh, ways of working. But I, I think that, I think it's, uh, it's hard to kind of judge architects for all the problems in the architecture industry because it works from kind of the political level to planning to um, the way capital, uh, like the cost of capital and the way that um, capital flows around, not just within the development process but when, within adjacent businesses as well, that is all kind of relevant. One last question. Would you like to ask one last question? Yes. Go for it. Um, everyone has value sets uh, aspects that drive the way they decide what path, career path they, they choose, whether it's that they're working in an environment that they disagree with or whether it's something that they think that they can change or whether it's something that um, drives them or moves them from place to place where they think they can be most effective. What would you say is yours? I think it's changed. Um, I mean, I was very, I think, uh, very more overtly political when I was younger. I think, and I think it's, it's probably clear then studying politics and working in, in government, you kind of gravitate towards that. Um, and I'd, I'd always been interested in, in having a social impact to what I did, whether it was in policy or in um, design when I was working with a think tank. I think coming back to Australia, a big driver for me was uh, trying to improve some of the outcomes in the housing sector in particular. I think it's probably a theme with a few people here. Um, and I mean, that, and that was very shaped by living in Zurich and seeing um, the role of the non-profit development sector there and the kind of what they were able to achieve at scale and the kind of experimentation in projects that uh, was in a lot of um, what I'm doing and was trying to work out where exactly the, the best place was to land to do that. And I think we had this conversation as well about when you moved back from the UK. Um, I always assumed it would be government and I think, uh, but I, my, I changed my mind and I think partly I think it's because of the, the value of 
prototype projects. I think whether it's Nightingale or Assemble or Malonglo in a different way, like there are um, developers now that are, are able to actually kind of expand the, the realm of what's seen as possible and that has a flow on effect, I think. Yeah, thank you. And sorry. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, okay, in the interest of time, can everyone please uh, thank Sarah. Join me in thanking Sarah. Um, so she can go get on her flight. Um, uh, so my to join the conversation that's happened here to our next speaker, Tanya Davidge, um, it's something about international experience. It's something about finding... Uh, yeah, which is both something that we can critique and be excited about. Um, Tanya Davidge is an architect, advocate, writer and researcher. As the president of Citizens for Melbourne, Tanya led a successful campaign opposing the demolition of Fed Square's Yarra building and its replacement with an Apple store. Um, I'm going to hand it over, but yeah maybe considering that neither of you had questions for each other, it could be about international experience. <laughs> Hi, Tanya. Uh, hello. <laughs> um, I mean, this was very unexpected and sudden, but yes. I have looked at your LinkedIn, so nice. I feel uh, I'm prepared now. You really know me because my <laughs> LinkedIn is the least used of my <laughs> social media channels. I mean, it's quite detailed. Um, Good. But I actually have wondered a bit about some, some your kind of career path just sort of observing from afar anyway. So this is as good an opportunity as any, I think, to ask some questions. Um, I mean, one is about this role of international experience. And I think particularly when I look around all the people that are, are, are part of this event today, um, there's quite a number who have spent time overseas, whether it's in the US, in Europe um, or elsewhere. And I don't know, I feel like maybe it's not a coincidence um, but I'm curious about your particular experience in New York and where you chose to practice when you came back to Australia. I did a master's degree at Columbia University. It was a long time ago now. Um, and it was absolutely pivotal, but in a way that was completely unexpected. So you heard Rory talk a bit before about how he... I, I came up through that same kind of structure, right? So we're talking, and Simona did too, we're talking the celebrity architect... The architects that we were learning about were super interested in parametric design. It was Zaha and Kulhas and, you know, all these fantastic shapes and forms. And this was what was exciting and the architecture was about the object. Um, and so I was lucky enough to end up and go study at Columbia University. And while I was at Columbia University, 9-11 um, happened. And so the Twin Towers came down and I lived in a place called Hoboken, which is just across the river. <laughs> you didn't know. You were going to open this can of worms, did you? Um, which was just across the river from the Twin Towers. Um, I uh, got stuck on Manhattan uh, during that point because they closed the entire city down. I went to a friend of mine's apartment um, on the upper west, I can't remember which side, hang on, never eat, west side where Columbia was. Uh, we had friends who worked in those buildings. We didn't know for almost the entire day whether they were alive or not. Um, our friend ended up walking all the way from the Twin Towers uh, up to where we were and he turned up covered in dust. Uh, and 
uh, we're on the towers and I watched the towers smoke and I, um, I watched all the paramedics and ambulance uh, sirens and lights um, just in this huge line down that side of the city. And what was really interesting to me was um, while it was an awful event, it was also a moment of connection. Um, people in the New York is not, like it's known as a very abrupt city, right? It's rude, the people are rude, they're New Yorkers. Um, people were talking to each other, people would talk to each other in the street, they would talk to each other on the subway when they sat down next to each other, they were um, kind of craving this human connection. And then things happen, like where I lived, the PATH train, because it was in New Jersey, went straight into, that was the stop, was the World Trade Centre stop. Um, and so these missing people posters started turning up and then of course as the days went by, those missing people posters became um, shrines. Um, and so there was this incredible sadness in the city but also this incredible humanity. And the architectural response to that was to have a competition to design, sorry, competitions, but um, to design a new World Trade Centre rising from the ashes. And, you know, I went to kind of conference after conference and symposium after symposium and watched architects put these things forward and it seemed to me that architecture, when concentrated on the object and parametric trace the humanity that happened, I became quite interested in people and community. Um, it took a little while to hit. You know, I came back here, I studied architecture in a very traditional way, for a very large firm. Um, yeah, but it really absolutely shifted uh, the way I practice, I think, fundamentally, and what interests me about the world. Another question that I, I mean, and this is maybe for the benefit of um, some students that might be in the audience today as well, um, is around the, I guess, the, the practicalities of having an atypical design practice. Mm. Um, and like I was exposed to this working at a think tank where uh, the approach was, um, we didn't wait for clients to come, we made our own projects. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a kind of uh, privilege that you have when you're based at a university to have the kind of everyday um, cost of, of running that type of practice mm -hmm. covered and not having to kind of always chase projects to, just to keep the lights on. Um, and I kind of have observed like that challenge amongst many other sorts of social design practices. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that, like that aspect of how... Um, how do you, how did you start Oopla and like how, what are the challenges I guess of um, not doing the parametric architecture and not doing the architecture as object but doing yeah. this more community based architecture? Um, it's not very lucrative, I'm not going to lie and you know like I am in a privileged position, my partner is fine, you know like we're all good, everything's sorted. I kind of propped it up by studying PhD, University of Melbourne like Simona. Um, although that's almost done now, so I'm, I am currently in limbo. Um, but it's a good limbo at the moment, but, you know, I might need to actually get a real job <laughs> a little later this year. But um, 
Yeah, it, it is. It's not easy to find your own path, but in some ways, and I think that's what's really interesting about all the people we're talking about here today is to kind of, everybody's trying to find a path through the built environment that is meaningful and makes change. I think that's probably like one of the serious common threads that we've all got. And yeah, and it is, it is hard. And I would not suggest, um, I would not necessarily suggest everybody, anybody do what I did. Like, I mean, I took on the Fed Square thing and it was because I just said yes and get sued-ish. Like, oh, we need a president. And it's like, the woman, the woman would be a president. And I'm like, okay, fine. I didn't know what that meant, right? But then all of a sudden I understood that it meant that I couldn't back down. So that was kind of good because it was kind of nice. Um, but it also meant that, you know, a year and a half of my life was consumed. It became the case study of my final chapter, though, for my PhD. So lucrative in other ways, maybe, you know, Tanya, rich in I other ways. I really want to hear more about this. <laughs> But unfortunately, we have reached time. Oh my God, we're already time. gone. You're really... <laughs> I have Two one more questions. question. <laughs> I know. You might have to save that for after. So... It was too long. I'm sorry. No, I think we all really appreciated the uh, conversation that you both had. And so I'd like everyone to join me in thanking Alexis for jumping in and... Asking unexpected questions. You asked um, the really long answer question first. <laughs> uh, okay, our second last interview is with Ross. Ross Harding, would you like to enter the circle? Um, if everyone now would like to stand up and sit down, yes, let us all stand up. Uh, does anyone need a jumper or a drink? We're going to keep going, but please get one if you need. Um, we've got just two more sessions uh, and then we can all listen to the DJ. Um, okay. I'm introducing, focusing on creative and cultural aspects of environment, technology and solutions. Are you actually an engineer? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. An engineer of optimism or... <laughs> Which I also know you do. Anyway, uh, he's also the founder of Off The Grid Festival, a cultural intervention dedicated to transforming our cities. That is all I've got here. I know there's a lot more to you. Yeah. Tanya, over to you. Hey, Ross, how's it going? Very well, thanks. I'm going I'm to get more questions in, I reckon. Okay. Maybe. Oh, let's try. We might not work that out. So, I'm really interested in what you do at Finding Infinity. Um, it's a little bit hard to understand because these things are nebulous. Um, I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit more specifically sure. on what you work on and how you work. Sure. Um, I run a small uh, consultancy, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's hard to put it into a box, what we do exactly, but we're basically environmentally focused um, I see it kind of like we're problem solvers. We just jump in on projects and we're environmentally focused. We basically find technical and financial solutions to help projects be completely self-sufficient. So we'll basically run the numbers on what it costs to make a project go 100% renewable, water neutral, zero waste, um, and even zero carbon construction on site. And then we basically just hustle. We just kind of like do backflips to try and uh, make sure it happens. Um, but every single project that we've worked on, I'm disappointed we work on doesn't get built and most of the things that do get built are not at the level that we would like them to be. 
but we learn a lot along the way. And um, I think we're getting better and better at scheming and hustling and trying to ensure this stuff really happens. So probably part of that is where we get plugged into a project, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Isn't there, there's some Beckett quote, isn't there, that talks about failing better? You know, you fail and you pick yourself up and then you fail better. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I don't know, personally, I was, uh, I, there's an, for me, that's how I learn personally. Mm. Like, I'm just at a level of innocence, asking stupid questions and finding out what's going on. And, um, yeah, it's sort of, it's, yeah, I don't know. Do you want me to keep going? Or? No, no, that's okay. Um, so, I mean, I suppose, you know, we've talked a little bit about how everybody's kind of trying to find a pathway through the built environment. Um, everybody here, I suppose, traditional pathways haven't really worked for. What's the traditional pathway for an engineer and um, where did you diverge? Um, yeah, actually, um, so my father was an engineer. I've got two older brothers that are engineers. Uh, sorry, two older brothers that are architects. And oh. so we grew up, like, our, as a family, we would go and check out architecture and art galleries. That was kind of like our sort of destinations for travel. So we're all pretty obsessed, but as maybe a little bit like Andrew McKenzie, I, I was the youngest. So I decided to do something different. Basically, um, I guess... Look, I, I, when I studied engineering, I was in South Australia and I did engineering and finance and uni didn't teach me what I wanted to know. Like, I, I mean, back then, mechanical engineering was had the closest thing I could learn about environmentalism was like uh, almost acoustics. It was this kind of thing. So I went overseas and went to Sweden and studied sustainable energy engineering and uh, schemed into a job in Sydney and basically started working in consultancy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I was always interested in architecture and it was good as an engineer being working in, uh, like, as an engineer working in an engineering firm where engineers don't care about architecture so much. Mm. It, was, it was easy for me to scheme in on the best projects because I guess I knew who these people were. But, yeah, um, uh, from there, really... I, I went on a weird diversion, you know, like I, li I lived and worked in Sydney. I got moved to London when the GFC hit. I basically, um, on the side, started to do things like road trips and uh, on like waste vegetable oil, visiting renewable power plants and trying to make films and doing a bad job of it. I was throwing solar powered parties in London. I quit my job in London and jumped on a cargo ship and moved to Mexico and bought a camera and tried filming for a while and, like, spent a few years basically making, like, sort of really pretty unviewed YouTube clips about <laughs> solutions. I'm working in a creative agency, you know, moved back to Melbourne, started throwing parties again. Mm. And uh, I guess I fell back into architecture, well, in the built environment in that way of, like... A kind of a vessel to cause some trouble again, if you know what I mean. I feel like everything we were doing was had the similar focus. Yeah. But it was it was a way of actually getting paid to um, uh, make some things happen somehow. Yeah, I think that um, for me, what's really fascinating about your practice is the um, well, and I, maybe it, it's that filmmaking that you're mentioning now and the creative agency thing. It's actually 
It's the idea that we need to change the way we tell our stories. And I think Andrew talked a little bit about stories um, before, but I find that's a really, um, like the new normal, for example, is a, is, you know, a way to retell a story and to kind of then, um, you know, use it to kind of garner public conversation, I suppose, around something, this idea of public communication being important. Um, yet again, I was wondering if you'd talk about that idea of storytelling and maybe like unpack a little bit of the new normal for everyone. Yeah. And Ross, as you're saying that, be mindful this is your last response. I'm Before really glad I got that I last question. I promise I will open up to questions, which up until now, I apparently I've lied. We haven't really passed a question, so okay. go for it. Um, I've found over the years what, like, being a person who was really into numbers and objectivity and sort of finding solutions... Um, no one else really cares about it. I found like the you know facts, figures, information was not enough to get people on board with doing these things, and that's why why I went on a diversion to learn about different forms of communication and engaging people. But when I moved back to Melbourne, I reckon we worked on it got to probably about a hundred. I feel like we did about a hundred different studies on different buildings, and kept on proving that within you know within budget or within 10% of the budget, we could build a building that was self-sufficient and pay for itself in less than 10 years. But we just kept on getting denied. So one thing led to the next, and then we just decided that we would basically run those same numbers, but looking at the city as a building in a sense. You know, So basically look at and ask the question, what would the cost still in zero waste? And what would the payback period be? Um, and, you know, we spit out these answers. Like, we, you know, Will, uh, Will's not here, but Will's maybe coming. He, um, he sat in my backyard with me punching numbers. We did it for two years. It, was, it took us ages. We wrote a report. Alison joined and, and then started to basically help us trying to visualise it and communicate it with graphs and graphics. But still, it was just a report, you know, like, and this is the thing, I started to present it to state government and, you know, different people and I tried to just knock on everyone's door asking them to, like, listen to what we'd found and what we had and, you know, what an amazing opportunity it was. And I found no one cared, you know, like, it was still a report. And it was just too hard for anyone to really engage in all of this information. So, probably, like... The, one of the most magical turning points in the whole exercise was basically Andrew McKenzie was there. We, I had 15 architects over to my house for dinner and basically just poured my heart out for 30 minutes and said, hey, guys, we've been running these numbers. It's an amazing opportunity. We would love you guys to help us to give this transition a feeling, to be able to communicate it in a way that basically allows people to feel what the future of the city could be. And um, so it was like basically 10 solutions. Well, we invited more than 10 architects, so it became 15 projects. And we translated that $100 billion transformation into 15 tangible projects that we basically decided we would go out and try and find funds and sites for. Two of them funded already, and we're just hustling hard to try and get the rest of them funded. So, and uh, I know I've got to wrap up, so... Maybe one thing that is really, really exciting about it is, you know, like for me, it really brought my... I was a bit negative about architecture and architects, you know, pre that, pre that situation and getting a little bit 
down about it, but it really re-inspired me about how amazing architects are and how they took this technical challenge, took a brief, connected this technology with people and, and humanised it, but then, you know, in a really achievable way. And that was one really amazing thing. The other really exciting thing is, like, learning that you can use this stuff to try and inform policy. And so we're basically, like, one of the, one of the six projects that's already moving is a retrofit project. The, the CFMEU have seen what we're doing there. They've asked us to work with them on five retrofits of union buildings, and then they want to use that to lobby for policy to retrofit all the buildings in the city. That's cool. Which is, which is really cool. I'm, in two weeks' time, I'm flying down to Hobart to present this at the CFMEU annual conference. So it's nice. hilarious, yeah. With that really <laughs> positive change-making news, does anyone have a question uh, for either? I will open it up to Tanya or Ross. I can sense that everyone wants a drink. Okay. I'm not giving up my microphone. Over to you. Just responding to the, the nature of the audience here, which includes quite a lot of students, could you maybe both conclude on how you would chasten to support the idea... Um, I'm kind of through advocacy and my interest in community and then the relationship between advocacy and governance, um, you know, pilot projects actually working out. Sarah Lynn Reese talked about documents being important. Um, I'm actually really interested in good citizenship. So what it means to be a good architectural citizen. Um, and how that gets unpacked through education. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of exploring that. That's a bit new to me in terms of teaching. Um, but I think there might be something about ethics in there too. And so we get taught incredible analytical and incredible critical skills um, you know, we have a fantastic education that goes from the macro to the micro. We can use it to think strategically or we can use it to make a building. Um, but I think, you know, kind of ethics and values are becoming more and more important. So kind of an understanding and a, and a way to help students facilitate um, an understanding of what... Because these things change over time. Um, you know, a better nuanced understanding of those issues, I think, is good in education. Um, we've been trying to jam with the universities for a while and it's been a bit um, slow. Like, we've, I've, I've not really um, found a, the right way to plug in. But we, I can maybe just give one example of what we're trying to do that's really tangible. Is um, We basically just decided one day we wanted to build a self-sufficient office for ourselves and we just kind of put a, a render out on the internet and just said, this is what we want to build. And Alan Perk contacted me from University of Melbourne and we're basically planning on just running a studio, building a, like an example of a net zero office building as one floor, which is not an imaginary thing, you know, like it's, you know, using all the materials that you would do to build a tower to basically... You know, I've, I've tried to offer to do it with CBUS and Len Lease and these guys too, but they weren't as interested in as the university was. But I think that, um, I don't know, my experiences with when I've, I quite often get in course or anything, but 
like a lot of the work that we're doing was very distant from the work that is being taught in university and I would have loved to see that university is like, you know, teaching beyond what we're doing, if you know what I mean. And it was sort of, I would have thought, you know, students would be getting taught how to kind of, yeah, push the envelope beyond the industry, not be 10 years behind what the industry is right now, basically. And like, that was, maybe I'm too neg, but that was my experience. Uh, well, with that, um, and on the note of graduates, I believe I'm actually the token uh, graduate here tonight, and I get to take Tanya's seat. Please do. Um, and you and hopefully the audience gets to ask me what it's like to be a graduate. Um, and I get to read my own bio, which is fun. Do we want it in third person? Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> Sarah, who is sitting here before you, is a recent architecture graduate. She's an editor, events curator and furniture designer with a passion for sharing ideas and public-facing design inquiry. Sarah is a curator of Process Talks, current projects and events facilitator with Parlour and has a furniture practice, Polyphase, that addresses radical forms of material sustainability. I'm good at reading stuff. Thank you. Not a very typical graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not a very typical. I might actually have those notes though. I still am a graduate, need notes. All right. So, Sarah, um, I think we were hanging out last night at the opening... Um, uh, in common, basically. So I think, I mean, like I mentioned before, I was, you know, throwing parties and driving around in a vegetable oil car and things like that. Maybe, can you tell us about the different things you're doing at the moment and how, like, how is that going in your journey of finding where, where you want to go? Is it chaos? Is it logical? Right now, Melbourne Design Week, it is chaos. But I really like it and I'm doing a lot of things and I think I'm doing a lot of things because somewhere in my mind I think that a lot of experience is going to give me the best tool set, kit, to start applying it to the whole host, the glut of problems and questions that I see not just in architecture but, you know, the consequences of crisis, the consequences of culture, um, and so, yeah, I'm madly designing furniture in that furniture practice. I'm trying to figure out how I take waste, polystyrene, which is a huge environmental problem, but also a problem for our construction industry. And just trying to turn that rudimentary extrusion that comes out at 100 degrees with two sets of woolen gloves into something practical and usable and bring that into our everyday. Um, this is a little plug for my exhibition. Uh, it's running as part of Melbourne Design Week. It's called Polyphase. Um, and you can see some of these objects that I create, which I'm trying to take, you know, waste, bring it into the home so we see it in the everyday. Um, another thing that I'm doing is to Parlour. And um, Parlour led me into practice and showed me all these incredible women and people practising architecture in different ways, but I think still I'm, I'm looking for people that are... I can now see a lot more women in architecture as a consequence of parlour. I get process and parlour really mixed up. They're very different. Um, one is women in architecture. Process is basically just a conversation 
about anything that you would like to talk about in architecture, it's a forum for that and we can host you. Come to us with your ideas. Um, just one of the many. So, yeah, I'm just out there trying to test all these things, trying to see more of what's on offer, trying to start to understand my skills so that I can start to put them into practice when real questions start coming my way. And so, like, you're, you're clearly motivated by a, a wide range of things. Like, you're, you know, you're obviously interested in a, all these different topics, but why can't you get that out of a practice, you know? So, like, does, is it, is that how it has to be, that you have to have 75 different side projects to, you know, fulfil you? Or is it practice that needs to change and actually, you know, like, broaden from purely looking at it as these individual projects, but maybe more looking at it as problem solving? Well, I've actually just started working at Hassel. I'm not sure if moving from a good waste, turning it into protein and fertiliser using black soldier flies. It's called Bardi. I was a designer and fabricator there. And I went from that, having a huge amount of design freedom and trust. The CEO was came from architecture, so I was able to kind of have the trust and put something into action. And then moving into really large practice where I'm at the bottom of the ladder. Um, the thing is, in Hassel, I don't quite feel like that. And I think that's why, I, you know, I did a bit of a survey of all the architecture practices out there and how they approach graduates. And what attracted me to this place in particular is that they were looking for a diversity of experience. Great. Um, that's me. And I think they pretty accurately were able to find a set of new graduates that fit that bill. And so it's really nice being around that set of people who are interested in approaching things differently um, and with a really broad background um, that actually has me quite interested in being in practice. Um, and also I think it's giving me the confidence, even within such a prestigious large practice, uh, to start pushing back pretty immediately. And maybe that's just me. Um, but I'm trying to inspire my colleagues um, to do the same. And I think it's being taken quite positively. Nice. So I, I, I guess my experience with experimentation was trying to find things that I was interested in that were not currently happening. Um, for you... In, in what needs to happen. The example is that, you know, an architecture firm has to operate in a commercial sense, so they're usually chasing projects that will be able to pay their staff. But um, are the projects and the things that you're interested in side projects that won't be able to pay you? Or are they, like, totally viable or potential to be viable, but just that that's not in-house at the moment? I definitely started off on a project that I didn't want to be on. Um, but I'm now on a project that I'm really enjoying being a part of and that I can definitely, you know, that's, that's not a side project. That's not... I work four days a week. I squish everything that I mentioned earlier, the furniture, the process, the parlour into Monday and then, in theory, four other days of the week is hassle. So I... <laughs> I'm lucky that the project I'm working on right now is 
something I'm really interested in and I'm having to advocate to make sure that, well, I'm trying to advocate for myself so that I'm on projects that continue to interest me at Hassel. I should probably stop keep saying their name. At this practice. Um, you need a logo. Yeah. Yep. Um, they have moved to a logo, actually. They've moved away from a name. Um, <laughs> the question? No, that's okay. I was, well, was going to go with another one, if that's okay, right. Okay, go for yeah. it. Yeah. The, um, I'm I, a bit of a graphic designer. <laughs> <laughs> question? Yeah. Um, any of your career? Are you, like, uh, I'm interested in what you see the dream at the moment. And it's like, I don't, last night we were also talking about this. It's like, you know, I think some people have a dream and a vision and some people are more focused in the now. And I think all of that is justifiable. Like, where, where do you see yourself in all of that and how, how do you see yourself planning it out? Mm, am I in the future or am I now? I think both. Um, I think everything that I do in the now has this fuzzy, amorphous idea of what the future looks like. And I'm just confident that the things that I'm doing now are going to get me there. Um, and that nothing is regrettable and that nothing's not going to help me in being in front of a problem or a or kind of a position in the future. And I think this is something that I kind of advocate for in all of the students and graduates and my peers and everyone I'm around, that, yeah, every, every and all experience seems to be valuable when presented with new questions and new problems. So my answer is I'm living in the now. My image of the future is unsure, but I know that we have to kind of skill ourselves up so we can tackle some of those really difficult questions. Because uh, I don't think we know what they are yet. I mean, we're starting to see them because they're coming at us so fast. Flood, fire, plague, culture. Perfect. Thank oh, it's actually you. my... Thank you. Can I get everyone to thank Ross for being my interviewee? <laughs> and uh, I had a sheet in there somewhere and I've lost it. So I'm just going to... Uh, Quickly, oh, here it is. Oh, thank you. Oh, I changed this text, so that's fine. Um, basically, all I wanted to say was keep the conversation going. Thank you all so much for sticking around so late. We have a DJ um, and our guests are staying, so please make the most of their presence. Ask them the questions that you didn't get to ask them because I didn't manage our time as well as hoped. Um, but very quickly, I'm going to pull all of the around team out of the audience uh, to say a few quick thank yous. We, we on? Yep. Come on. Where are you? Yes. Hi, we're around. We put on this little shindig. Um, and we just wanted to say a few thank yous. Um, so we wanted to thank, of course, M Pavilion um, for allowing this to happen, um, to Jen and to Molly and all the behind-the-scenes team that make these events happen. Um, we wanted to thank Mel Dodd and Monash Architecture for their support in putting this on as well, um, and specifically uh, Timothy Moore and Andy Fergus for their help in um, getting this off the ground. Um, 
also like to thank the DJ Dresser who's about to play um, and give us some good tunes to talk and drink to. Um, um, importantly, everyone want to thank everyone for with the delay. Rory, Sarah, another Sarah, Simona, Ross, Tanya, Alexis, Andrew, and Miriam. Thank you all for coming um, and for and for being involved. Um, and we've actually got a little gift for you that we'll be sending to your inboxes. Uh, a little gift card to Euro the bookshop, Euro bookshop. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> we realised after the fact. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, stick around, have a drink um, and, and chat amongst yourselves. Um, thank you all again. Can I get everyone to join me in a round of applause for the Around team and our speakers and all of you for being here? Ah, come on. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.